Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. Today's Halloween-themed episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark is proudly brought to you by Quip, the company dedicated to delivering perfect oral care right to your door. Literally. Quip makes having a great smile simple, affordable, and surprisingly enjoyable for everyone. I'll be back after our first story tonight to tell you a little more about Quip and a special offer they have for those of you listening in tonight. Until then, light up those jack-o'-lanterns, grab yourself a handful of trick-or-treat goodies, and prepare to be scared, because I'm about to put you in the Halloween mood. One terrifying tale at a time. <laughs> Stay tuned. The show's about to begin. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in. Turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening. You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 14. I'm your host, Otis Jiry. In tonight's episode, in honor of the spooky season, I'll be performing four Halloween-themed stories for you, 
about dastardly delusions, sinister scarecrows, ghastly girls, and waking nightmares. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So, lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale of terror this evening comes to us courtesy of author Jeff Miller. In it, a man recounts a tale of childhood tragedy and brings a whole new meaning to the phrase, Stranger Danger. Without further ado, I present to you, Pick a Pocket. My younger brother disappeared on Halloween night when he was seven years old. It hollowed out my mother, who was raising the two of us all by ourselves, and that was already hard enough in 1971. Mom finished drinking herself to death in 1974, and I went to live with my aunt and uncle in Raleigh. It was the not knowing, I guess, that did it. The police were never able to determine if Davy had crept out that open window by himself or if someone had climbed up that tree to take him from our room. Either way, he was never seen again. But I knew. I never said a word. I played dumb, and they all bought it. I'll say what happened now. The cancer has wormed its way through my lymph nodes into just about every other organ I have, so I don't have long, and I need to own up to my part in it before I go to meet whatever awaits me on the other side. I hope my children find this post one day. Maybe then they'll understand why I raised them the way I did. But if my children don't believe it, that's fine, too. They can blame it on the tumors in my brain if it gives them comfort. I'll tell you what, though. The cancer may hurt all over, but my brain's working just fine. Davy and I were close. We were just over a year apart and did everything together. In the summer, we'd spend our days and sometimes our nights fishing on the river. At school, we wouldn't play kickball unless we were both chosen for the same team. We looked out for each other. So, just like always, that last Friday in October, we explored the elementary school fall carnival together. In our small town, it was a big deal. They'd rent an inflatable moonwalk you could jump around in. The principal would sit in a dunk tank, and parent volunteers would run games like apple bobbing, a cakewalk, and musical chairs. Mr. Jones, who lived on the same street we did, would always assemble this enormous superslide that had to be 30 feet tall. I can't imagine it was safe, but no one ever got hurt. We had just bought tickets at one of the playground booths to use at the spook house. We knew it was only Mrs. Gardner's classroom with the lights off and scary sound effects playing, but it was still fun. Halfway there, Davy pulled on my arm. Hey, Jeff. 
Let's go to the pickpocket clown. There was always a couple of parents or teachers wandering around as a pickpocket clown. I can't imagine any school system would allow it today, but back then, I guess adults were more naive or less paranoid. Anyway, the clown's outfit was always decked out with tons of pockets, full of cheap candy and plastic toys. For a ticket, kids could pick a pocket and draw something out. Underneath the ball cap and makeup, this particular clown looked to me like Jimmy Barton's dad. He was a deacon at our church and was always really kind to the children, but in a good way, not a creepy way. His costume was amazing. It shimmered in bright green, orange, red, and blue, with giant silver polka dots all around. It was covered in pockets, loaded down with stuff. He saw that we were staring at him and bent over until his gaunt, shock-white face was on our level. Smiling widely, he crooked his finger, gesturing for us to come over. Pick a pocket, kids. Just one ticket. Treasure galore for the taking. Davy and I looked at each other, and he elbowed me to go first. I don't know why we were nervous. We both knew Mr. Barton well, but we were. I tore a ticket off my roll and gave it to the clown. Decisive. Brave. I like that in a boy. Go ahead. Pick a pocket. There were so many to choose from that I felt lost looking at the costume. The silver dots swirled and seemed to move around inside the shimmering, multicolored fabric. After a few seconds, I got the feeling that I wasn't choosing the pocket, but that the pocket was choosing me. Before I knew it, my hand was inside a pocket near his chest. I pulled out a pair of plastic glasses with shiny cellophane lenses. Great! The summer before, I had spent three dollars for a pair of these so-called X-ray specs, from the back of Boys Life magazine, and it was a total scam. Ow, x-ray glasses. He put his hands up in mock protest. But don't put them on now. You wouldn't want to see me in my bloomers. Then, darkly serious, with his face just inches from mine, he whispered, Best wait till you get home, Jeffrey. You can put them on then. His breath stank of rotten, mushy leaves. He stood back up and turned to Davy. So, Davy, are you brave enough to pick a pocket? Davy gave me a sidelong glance, and I shrugged. He nodded and stared at the pockets, finally choosing a small one on the clown's left arm. He stuck his hand in and yelped, pulling it back like he'd touched a hot coal. On his hand stood a pulsing, brilliant blue spider about the size of a silver dollar. Davy was frozen, unable to speak, as the spider's hairy legs throbbed. It bit me, he said quietly, afraid that if he spoke any louder, the thing might bite him again. But the clown just laughed and picked it up with his thumb and index finger. Bit you? How would it bite you? It's rubber, he roared. Wriggling the spider, it wobbled back and forth. I was confused. I thought I'd seen it moving, but it was clearly a fake spider. You want it? Davy shook his head vigorously. No. Suit yourself, the clown said, 
and he placed it back in a pocket. See you boys later. Enjoy the carnival. But instead of strolling around to greet other children, the clown walked straight across the playground and through the gate in the fence. We watched him walk down the street until he turned a corner out of sight. I've never seen Mrs. Ballard act so weird. And that really hurt. Look, my hand is red. Something stuck me. Mrs. Ballard, what are you talking? That was Mr. Barton. Nothing stuck you. You've been scratching it because it stings. And that was Mrs. Ballard. She's the class mom. She brings brownies for every birthday. And he's her kid. I looked at his hand and couldn't see any place he'd been stuck. Whatever, I said. Come on, let's go to the spook house. We spent the rest of the afternoon and most of the evening at the carnival eating cotton candy and caramel apples for dinner, which left us a little sick to our stomachs walking home. Mom was still at the hospital and wouldn't finish her shift until late, so Davy and I watched TV until we got tired enough to go to bed. The two of us shared a room upstairs, twin beds separated by a small nightstand. As Davy put on his pajamas, I saw him winch as he put his left arm through the sleeve. You okay? I asked. I told you, something stuck me when I reached in that pocket. Let me see. Davy held out his hand for me to see, and it did look a little red, but I still couldn't see any sign of a puncture wound. Use the glasses. What? I said. The x-ray glasses, the one you got from Mrs. Ballard. It was Mr. Barton, cheese weasel. And those glasses are totally fake. The ones I ordered from Boy's Life just made everything look gray and blurry. I'll try it anyway. I rolled my eyes and went downstairs to fish them out of the trash. When I got back to our room, he held out his hand to me. Look, he said. When I put the glasses on, at first, I thought they were worse than the ones I'd paid money for. The world wasn't even blurry. All I could see were patches of light and dark. But after a few seconds, it didn't matter, because my senses of smell and touch were heightened to such crazy degree that I had a physical sense of my surroundings. It wasn't based on light, though. It was based on scent, movement, and vibration, if that makes any sense. I could feel the walls of the room, even the faintest noises, would echo off them. I could smell a roach scuttling up inside the drywall and knew exactly where it was. If I had been able to punch through the wall... I could have snatched it right up. My brother was so noisy and ripe, he was like a bright shining sun in the darkness. Shampoo and soap, armpit stink and toe jam, apple peel and mint toothpaste. His hand was vibrating all over and it smelled of an infected ear. It was all too much. I tore the glasses off my face. It hurt a little. Oh, what'd you see? Is my hand infected? Could you see through it? I, I, I didn't see anything. These x-ray glasses aren't even a good fake. Go to sleep. The next morning, Mom was still asleep from her late nursing shift, so Davy and I each ate a bowl of sugar smacks. I grabbed our fishing poles. It was Saturday, and we always went fishing if it wasn't raining. That morning, though, Davy wanted to wait for Mom to wake up so she could look at his hand. It did look a little swollen, but unless you looked hard, 
You couldn't really tell. I gave him the rod and he tried to cast. He did just fine, even though he said it smarted a bit. We decided we'd just fish for the morning, and by the time we came back for lunch, Mom would be awake. A half hour later, we propped up our bikes against a white oak and walked up a game trail along the Chattahoochee River to our usual fishing hole. We rummaged through our tackle box, which I had brought in my bike's front basket, and baited our lines with lures for rainbow trout. Hey, you have those x-ray specks? Maybe you can see the fish underwater. I did have the specks. I still don't know why, but at the last minute I run upstairs to get them from our nightstand and shove them in my jacket pocket. Dave, I don't know. I told you they were fakes. You saw something. Come on. I know I can tell. Tell me what you saw. Davy, don't push it. I know there's something wrong with my hand. At least tell me that. Okay, I said. I didn't really see anything. I could smell it. It's weird. Your hand smelled infected. I knew there was something up with it. Damn it. Hey, don't swear. Mom doesn't like it. Are you going to see if there are fish or what? I sighed and put the glasses on. Immediately, the world changed. I could feel the wings beating from every insect in the forest. I could smell every spider lurking under the leaves and in the trees. Under the water, I could feel the ripples from fish swimming. Yeah, I said quietly. There's a lot of fish. Good, he said, and he cast his line into the river. The skin of his right hand was vibrating even more than before, and it smelled rotten. No longer the sickly sweet of infection, but more like decaying meat. I took off the glasses again. This time I took a little skin with it from my temples. I cried out a bit, but Davy didn't notice. His rod was already bent over. Hey, I got one. Look, Jeff, I got one. We fished for the rest of the morning and brought home four small trout, which would make a pretty good dinner for the three of us. Mom always appreciated the fish we brought home. Meat was expensive, and her nursing job didn't pay all that well. On the way home, my arms and legs itched something awful, and I was afraid I'd stepped in poison ivy. Back then, it seemed I only needed to see the stuff to break out in hives, so after I'd hugged Mom and put the fish in the cooler to scale later, I went to the bathroom to inspect myself. It wasn't a rash... There were little black hairs starting to grow out of my skin. I still have them, you know, all these decades later. I always wear long-sleeved shirts and never wear shorts. Shit, I've used to have to shave my entire body twice a day when I was younger. They're stiff with little barbs. If I let them grow out, they're a quarter of an inch long and draws blood if someone runs their hand over them. I always told my girlfriends it was a genetic condition. Until I met my wife, rest her soul, I never had a relationship that lasted very long. Thankfully, with the cancer, they don't seem to grow out very much, so I guess there's at least one upside to this disease. Anyway, back then, I was plenty freaked out, but I didn't want Mom to worry, so I just put my sweatshirt back on and said nothing when I walked back into the kitchen. Jeff, did Mrs. Ballard stick your brother's hand with something? I don't know why Davy says it's Mrs. Ballard. 
It was Mr. Barton. He was the pickpocket clown, and yeah, Davy flinched like something had stuck him. Does it look infected to you? It might be. It feels hot, but I don't see a puncture wound. If it's still swollen Monday, I think we'll have to take you to see Dr. James, Davy. But I don't think it's bad enough to take you to the emergency room. Davy nodded. I knew we couldn't afford a trip to the ER anyway. The year before, I tripped over a tree root and busted my head bad on a rock. I managed to walk home, and Mom put in the stitches herself so we didn't have to pay a hospital bill. These fish are beautiful. Why don't you clean them, Jeff, and put them in the fridge? I'll fry them up with some potatoes for dinner. Sound good? You boys can go trick-or-treat early, and the fish will be ready when you get home. So don't ruin your appetite with candy. It did sound good. Once I was done cleaning the fish, Mom shooed us out of the house to play for the rest of the afternoon. By the river, Davy and I planned our costumes for that night. We didn't have money to buy one of those stupid costumes in the stores back then. A foul-smelling monster mask and a plastic poncho with a picture of the monster you were supposed to be. We had to make our own. Davy decided to be a sheet ghost and I'd be a hobo. I had plenty of worn-out clothes for that. We fished a little, but the fish weren't biting anymore, so we came home early to make our costumes. Honey, are you sure it was Mrs. Ballard? Mom said as we walked in. I called her, and she says she was selling tickets, not doing the pickpocket clown. That's because it was Mr. Barton, I said. I called him too, Jeff. He was in Dolanega all day yesterday. Davy just shrugged. Mom shook her head and went back to cooking. Trick-or-treating started out fun. The bakers gave out full-size snicker bars, and Mr. Jones had big boxes of Cracker Jacks. But after hitting just eight houses, Davy said he felt really bad and wanted to go home. I knew he had to be really sick to miss trick-or-treating. Is it your hand that hurts? I asked him. No, he said, wincing. After that, he didn't want to talk, so I just put my arm around his shoulders and took him back to the house. Mom was surprised to see us. She took his temperature, and he had a fever of 100.2. She checked his hand to see if an infection was the cause. But the hand was no longer swollen or red, and she saw no sign of a wound gone septic. So she figured it was just a virus. She made him eat a little bit of dinner and sent him off to bed. I went with him because I didn't want him to be alone. He woke me up a little before midnight. Jeff, something's happened. Something's happening. I don't like it. I turned on the light and he was quivering on top of his sheets. Davy, what's wrong? Something's inside me. Use the glasses. Use the glasses. I didn't even think. I just grabbed the glasses off the nightstand and put them on. I could smell them. They were skittering under his skin, all of them, little ones, everywhere. I started to scream, but then I guess I didn't. I remember the rest of the night in fragments. I saw the little ones emerge from under his skin, like 10,000 little pimples bursting. They were just a bit bigger than a pinhead, but there were so many. He couldn't make a sound, and I couldn't move, not until they had finished cocooning him. When they were done, they all burrowed inside the cocoon to feed. 
I didn't choose. I just did it. I threw him over my shoulder, crawled out the window, and scuttled down the exterior wall on all fours. By starlight, I moved through the woods on a trail that I'd never seen before. I somehow knew to stop when I reached the center of an ancient stand of enormous oaks. In the center stood the clown, with the glasses. I could now see the extra limbs twitching in the pants leg and sleeves where they were stuffed. I could see its mask for what it really was, a cheap Bozo the Clown mask you could pick up for a few bucks at any Kmart. I could smell the thick, blue, pasty liquid that was its blood as it coursed through all eight eyes, its cephalothorax, abdomen, and palps. It didn't bother making me think it was anyone else. I was far beyond needing to think it was someone I trusted. I handed it what was left of my brother, and it turned to go deeper into the woods that I'd never seen before and haven't seen since. After a few paces, it paused and turned to me. Not coming? It may not look like it, but there's still plenty left here for you. And don't you want to see what my children will become? You can start a family of your own. I wanted to feed, but my love for my brother held me firm. It could make me passive. It could make me watch. It could even make me bring him here. But it could not make me eat my brother. No. It stared at me for a long while. Well, the glasses are yours forever now. You'll follow when you're ready. You'll know the way. And it disappeared into the dark. Once I could no longer see the spider, I regained control of my body. I ran back on the trail, increasing my speed as it started to fade. Finally, I broke out of the woods and climbed up the tree and got back into my bed where I cried and cried and cried. The glasses were gone, but I knew they really weren't really gone. I could hardly see anything anymore, but I smelled and felt and sensed far better than ever. I miss Davy like a lost limb. I still do. Sometimes I think I can see his shadow near me, but I'm pretty sure it has just been wishful thinking. I can never smell him. I hope he's forgiven me wherever he is. My life was not easy. I used my mom's razors and later my uncle's to shave my body every chance I got. Sometimes I'd flinch raw hamburger or chicken from the fridge when no one was looking. I would catch roaches and mice with traps. It helped with the cravings. Reading was almost impossible, but I managed to get by somehow. I graduated and got a job doing construction. I know my children think I'm cold and without affection. But Liam and Beth, it's because I loved you so fiercely that I never hugged you or even touched your bare skin, even after your mom died in the car accident. It would have been too much to smell your flesh with my fingers. That's why your mom and I adopted... I could never be intimate with her or anyone else, not ever. She understood, somehow. Maybe she was one of those people who have no interest in sex. Either way, she loved me for who I was, and I loved you all too much to devour you, to devour anyone. Every day's been a struggle, but here I am, 47 years later, and still a human being, mostly. 
I'm proud of that fact. I've never taken it personally. And I think that's why I never became like that clown. Wyatt was never able to completely remake me into a monster. I'm about out of strength, and the nurse has told me my family will be here soon. So I'll wrap this up, and we'll try to make it at least through one last visit. I hope I'll see Davy again, maybe even in a few hours. And if I don't, if there's nothing at all after death, I'm okay with that. Because even after all that's happened and all that's been lost, it's been a good life. I've had love, and that's enough. If nothing else, remaining human to the end is a very satisfying fuck you to that goddamn clown. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed Pick a Pocket by author Jeff Miller, as performed by yours truly. Up next, we've got another tale of terror that'll make your blood run cold. Just in time to compliment the chill in the air this Halloween season. Before I proceed, however... I'd like to tell you a bit more about tonight's sponsor, Quip, and how they can help you ensure that no matter how much candy you eat this Halloween, your smile will look better than ever. Let me ask you, have you ever considered what actually makes a better toothbrush? If you're like me, you've owned dozens in your lifetime, and probably have a whole drawer full of the free ones your dentist gave you over the years. And we all suspect some are better than others, and that the quality of a toothbrush can make the difference between having a fantastic cavity-free checkup every year to being on the receiving end of a lifetime of dental distress. But what is it exactly that makes something as ordinary as a toothbrush extraordinary? Is it industrial strength power? Claims of miraculous, trendy ingredients? Multiple modes? If you ask your dentist, they're likely to tell you, believe it or not, that it's less about the brush and more about how you use it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why Quip was created by dentists and product designers to focus on what actually matters for your oral health healthier habits. Quip's sensitive sonic vibrations with a built-in timer 
guide gentle brushing for the dentist recommended two minutes with 30-second pulses, ensuring an effective, even cleaning each and every time. In a world where up to 90% of people don't brush for a full two minutes or don't clean evenly, this can make a world of difference that you'll be able to feel every time you brush. Better yet, with Quip, there's no need to worry about your toothbrush wearing out. Quip automatically delivers brush heads to you every three months for clean new bristles right on schedule, all for just $5, and with no extra trips to the store required. It's a friendly reminder that it's time for a refresh and to stay committed to your oral health. And you can rest easy knowing that with Quip, you've got one less thing to remember. As if all of that's not awesome enough, Quip's sleek, intuitive design is simple to use and comes with a travel cap that doubles as a mirror mount. The multi-use cover even slides over your bristles to pack and protect your Quip on the go. So it's perfect to bring on road trips and vacations. Not only that, but there are no wires or clunky chargers with Quip so it takes up less space and keeps your bathroom tidy. Not to mention, it runs for three months on a single charge. What more could you ask for in a toothbrush? For the first time ever, these and other thoughtful features may just get you excited about brushing twice a day. Once you've tried Quip, brushing will be more than a responsibility. It'll be a pleasure. Oh, and for those of you listening in tonight with kids of your own, Quip offers a new brush just for them, so they can feel the difference too. Quip's new kid-friendly brush is the same as their original version, just reduced in size. Children are inspired to brush more often and more thoroughly when they're able to use a product that mimics the look and feel of the ones that the adults in their life use. And with Quip, you can help them develop a grown-up routine without the need for childish gimmicks. And that's something both of you can be proud of. The truth is, we all know instinctively that good habits matter when it comes to living a healthier life. Whether you're talking about eating well or exercising regularly, getting in the habit of doing what's best for you and doing it often is key to being our very best. And what better way to help form fresh oral health habits than with Quip, the company dedicated to delivering perfect oral care right to your door. Quip starts at just $25 and you'll get your first refill free at getquip.com dark. This is a simple way to support our show and start brushing better. But you have to go to getquip.com slash dark to get your first refill free. Go right now and get quip.com slash dark. That's D-A-R-K. Dark. Be sure to use the URL to let the kind folks at Quip know that Otis Jiry sent you. It'd mean a lot to me. Thanks so much for your time and for giving Quip a try this month. Now that we've helped give you something to smile about, courtesy of our friends at Quip, 
Allow me to give you something to turn that grin outside in with another terrifying tale. This one from author Kelly Foster about Halloween decorations that really put the scare in scarecrows. Without further ado, I present to you the Murphy Horror House. Living in the town of Finley, you hear a lot of urban legends. Scary stories and rumors usually conjured up to convince the young kids to behave and not stay out past their bedtimes. As I understand it, it wasn't always this way. We moved to town two months ago in mid-August, and immediately it became apparent that Finley took this time of year really seriously. Apparently it's coming up on two years, almost to the day, since a small string of seemingly random murders occurred here, all over the course of a week. All the flags in town are lowered to half-mast, and candles and flowers have been piled in front of a memorial to the victims in the town square. My mother and I haven't paid much mind. It's sad, sure, but we've just been busy trying to acclimate uh, to our new surroundings. Last Saturday afternoon, we spent a few hours perusing the garage sales in our neighborhood, looking for antiques and interesting Halloween decorations. We came upon a yard that was rather sparse in their offerings. They had some cardboard boxes of books, a rack of old clothes, and an interesting-looking scarecrow sitting in a chair by the house. It had a sign tacked to its threadbare overalls, five dollars. Intrigued, I made my way over to it and was examining it with interest when a teenager approached me, also looking at the scarecrow. She seemed really nervous and wouldn't take her eyes off the thing. Hi, do you live here? I asked, gesturing to the house. This is a really cool scarecrow, super vintage. She shook her head furiously. No, I I live down the street. I just wanted to... You're new here, right? New to town? I nodded, a puzzled smile on my face. Yeah, well, why? Just... Uh, you shouldn't buy that scarecrow, okay? You should leave it be. Haven't you heard the story? She said in a hushed voice. I glanced back at my mother, who was browsing through the boxes of books, sending her help-me eyes in case this girl was a little unhinged. Uh, no, what story? She leaned in and proceeded to tell me the story that I've transcribed below to the best of my ability. The Murphy family prided themselves on a few important aspects of their modest, middle-class, Midwestern life. They rooted for their hometown football team even when they were playing awfully, which was most of the time. They insisted on eating dinner together as a family at least five nights per week, with no cell phones allowed at the table. And every year they constructed the best Halloween yard display in the entire town. It was something Jack's grandparents had begun with him and his siblings when they were still small and he grew up knowing that he would show his own kids the joy of spending a month setting up fake coffins filled with rubber mummies and half-decomposed zombies. After the family dinner, but before it started to get dark, they would haul in the props and decorations from the storage shed and begin the painstaking process of arranging them in the expansive front yard. 
gallons of fake blood would be spilled and countless bags of fluffy spiderwebs would be stretched across every tree and bush. Over decades of improvements, the display had grown from a small cluster of foam headstones to a few green hands protruding from the ground into a massive, fenced-off haunted experience complete with fog machines and sound effects. The surrounding neighborhoods came to expect this wonderland of horror and looked forward to it, watching the Murphys begin to build it on October 1st and excitedly standing in line to tour it on Halloween night. Lana, the youngest Murphy child, had even made them a modest Facebook page to attract more attention. The spooky tour itself took roughly five to ten minutes, depending on how quickly the groups moved across the yard. The display was arranged with only one entrance and one exit. It was barricaded on all other sides, so the only way to escape was to finish walking through it, much like any traditional haunted house. The three kids took turns dressing up as voodoo dolls, murder victims, or demonic clowns to jump out from behind various props to terrify their visitors. At the end of the tour, everyone would receive their fair share of candy and orange pumpkin-shaped stickers that read, I survived the Murphy Horror House, followed by the respective year. A great time was always had by all, and Jack felt pride in knowing he was making his late grandparents proud. The display would vary slightly from year to year, depending on the latest and scariest props that Daisy, Jack's wife, had either scavenged from after Halloween sales last season or created from scratch. A group of witches huddled over a cauldron might end the tour rather than the traditional chainsaw-wielding madman. A gravedigger might be on the left side rather than the right to accommodate creepier additions. As props were added, some were inevitably retired. Countless years of sitting out in the elements had begun to wear them down. But one part of the display would never change, not if Jack had anything to say about it. In the very center of the tour, illuminated by green and orange spotlights, and hung askew on a ragged cross-like post, was the Scarecrow. Jack made that Scarecrow himself when he was eleven years old. Together with his father, he gathered the hay and bits of old fabric necessary to bring it to life, and it had appeared in their display ever since. The burlap sack that comprised the scarecrow's face was tattered and full of moth holes, but it still bore its signature crooked smile, stitched in black yarn and curling up a bit too far on either side. It wore an old straw hat, a denim work shirt that once belonged to his father, patched overalls, and a pair of dusty boots. Its hair was an unruly black wig that Jack's mother had found at a garage sale, sticking out from under its hat in all directions, and its eyes were painted on, dark red triangles sunken into its face. The scarecrow was always the first to go up when the displayed construction began, and the last to come down in an almost ceremonial fashion. It was the centerpiece of the whole production, even if most of the trick-or-treaters didn't find it scary anymore, not compared to the more modern, detailed props. Jack didn't care. The scarecrow ruled over the yard like a king, reminding everyone of where the tradition began. That year, it was a week before Halloween, and the display was almost complete. Lana, Ryan, and Trevor had long since given up on decorating and were inside, 
busy arguing over who would get to dress up as Jason from Friday the 13th. Jack was doing what he always did as the big night drew closer, walking the whole display over and over, checking to see that everything worked and nothing should be tweaked. The sun had sunk below the horizon, and Daisy was calling him to come in, but Jack insisted on one last stroll with his flashlight in hand. Rolling her eyes at her obsessive husband, Daisy relented and retreated inside to stop her children from killing each other over a costume. Jack entered through the stone gate at the entrance to the tour and followed the path as it wound back and forth through the yard. Occasionally he would stop to scoot a rubber rat out of the walkway with his shoe or arrange a bloody vampire so its eyes caught the light a bit better. In general, all seemed to be in order. The excitement of knowing it was almost showtime put a skip in Jack's step. He came around the corner to where the scarecrow was set up, and at first he thought his eyes might be playing tricks on him in the dim light. Spotlights that usually illuminated the scarecrow were turned off. That in itself was odd, as all the lights were on the same circuit and the other lights were still blazing around him. Even in the shadowy darkness, it quickly became apparent that the wooden cross that held his old friend was empty. Daisy! Jack bellowed, spinning in circles and shining his flashlight every which way, as if to catch the thief. Daisy poked her head out of the front door. You rang? She replied with more exasperation than concern. The scarecrow! It's gone! Someone took it! Jack shouted. He was now sprinting toward the end of the maze, checking behind every grave and looking in the front and back of an old hearse. He was sure someone was still lurking inside the display, snickering at his distress. I'm sure nobody took it, dear. You probably just left it somewhere, Daisy sighed. Jack ran up to her, panting from exertion. You know it's the first thing I put up. I saw it less than twenty minutes ago. It was there the last time I walked the maze, he protested, still shining the flashlight around and behind the porch and into the still darkness of the yard. Nothing else seemed to miss. It's just some neighborhood kids playing tricks on us. I'm sure they'll bring it back. We'll arm the alarm system tonight before bed, Daisy replied, taking her husband by the elbow and gingerly guiding him inside. She didn't completely understand his fixation with the scarecrow, but she hadn't seen him this upset in quite some time. Okay, he said with a huff, clearly not placated. And that was what they did. The alarm system covered the entire front yard, from the end of the driveway and back to the house. It was a simple motion-activated number. Anything larger than a squirrel would set it off with blurring sirens and flashing lights. Because of this, they only ever armed it during the month of October, and only for the two weeks leading up to Halloween, when most of the expensive props were put out. They'd been woken abruptly more than once in the past years, because someone's dog got loose and triggered it accidentally. That night, however, the alarm did not go off, and in the morning Jack awoke bright and early from a restless sleep. He ran to the bedroom window and peered down, the room was on the second floor and overlooked the front yard. Stunned, he could plainly see, even from a distance, that the scarecrow was back on its post. 
Its head was even drooping slightly to the right, just as he had left it the night before. How is this possible? Jack asked anxiously as they made breakfast later that morning and prepared to usher kids off to school. Daisy shrugged, more focused on packing lunches than the conversation. Maybe you were mistaken. You said yourself the spotlights were on. No, I know what I saw. How did they get that scarecrow back on its post in the middle of the night without triggering the alarms? He demanded. It was baffling to him. The scarecrow was as big as a full-grown man and unwieldy to carry. He always needed his eldest son Ryan's help hanging around the post, and he considered himself fairly fit. It must have taken at least two people to remove it and put it back, maybe three if they were young teens. Yet none of them had heard a thing. Daisy stuffed a bagel in his mouth and handed him his coffee. Maybe the alarm system is faulty. We haven't used it in a year. I can have someone out to look at it tomorrow. Don't worry so much, Jack. You've got what you wanted. It's back, isn't it? She reminded him. He was about to argue with her further when the sound of the morning news distracted them both. Lana turned up the volume on the TV in the living room and the rest of the family slowly congregated around it. Tragedy stuck in Finley last night when 12-year-old Marla Greenberg was found murdered in her bed. We're still receiving details, but it appears she was... At this point, there was a pause as the newscaster swallowed thickly, his expression deeply uncomfortable. Disemboweled. Several of her internal organs are missing. There was no sign of forced entry, and the police are investigating the entire Greenberg family. Finley PD has declined to offer any interviews, and the family asks for privacy during this difficult time. In shock and horror, Jack reached for the remote, taking it from Lana and changing the channel before the news story could continue. Oh, my God! Daisy cried, her hands flying to her lips and her eyes welling with tears. I know Marla. She's in Trevor's class. Oh, her poor parents. For all you know, her poor parents are the one who killed her, Ryan said with no small amount of snark. Trevor nodded his agreement, forever mimicking his older brother, and Lana just rolled her eyes. Daisy shushed them, still fighting back tears. Jack was also thoroughly shaken by the news, although he tried not to show it. Nothing like this ever happened in their city. There were mostly happy, pleasant people here. The strange events from the previous night, combined with this latest development to add to the heavy sense of unease, was building in his gut. He couldn't shake the feeling that something was very, very wrong. They hurried the kids off to school with multiple reminders of be careful and hurry home. As soon as the bus drove off down the street, Jack called the alarm company and scheduled maintenance for the following afternoon. Whatever was going on, nobody was setting foot in their yard again without them knowing it. That night it took Jack hours to fall asleep. The kids had all come home from school raving about Marla Greenberg's murder and spouting several theories their friends had told them. Try as he might to change the subject at dinner, it was all any of them wanted to talk about. Jack supposed he understood. Marla had been their age. They must be frightened that something might happen to them, too. The creepy time of the year did nothing to help the situation. 
it all fed right into their mounting Halloween hysteria. After spending hours tossing and turning in bed, mulling it over in his mind, he decided to give it up and go get a glass of water from the kitchen. As he rose from bed and passed by the window of the bedroom, something outside caught his eye. He hurried over and looked down into the yard, rubbing his eyes to make sure he was actually seeing what he thought he was seeing. The scarecrow was gone again. His hands gripped the windowsill tightly, his knuckles turning white. It was everything he could do to not wake Daisy. He knew she would write it off as another neighborhood prank, cite the broken alarm system as the culprit, and assure him it would be fixed the next day. The straps that held the scarecrow to its post were loose and waving gently in the nighttime breeze, and he could barely make out little bits of hay leading off in the direction of the exit. Part of him wanted to sit on the front porch with a baseball bat and wait for the intruders to return, in case they decided to steal other props from him. But something about the whole situation gave him pause. Why would they bring the scarecrow back only to steal it again? Were they just messing with him? What were they doing with it? It didn't feel right. Reluctantly, he retrieved his glass of water and tried to go back to sleep. But this time he cracked the window open a few inches to better hear what was going on in the yard. He slept, facing it. Jack woke hours later to the sun streaming in and Daisy shaking him roughly by the shoulder. Bewildered, he blinked his sleepy eyes open and stared up at her face. She looked extremely pale, and she had clearly been crying. Jack, it's happened again, she said quietly, her throat tight. Come downstairs. Not fully awake and barely understanding what she meant, he got up and reached for his bathrobe. In his haste, he forgot to glance out the window. The TV was blurring when they entered the living room. The kids were poised in a semicircle around it, frozen in place like statues as they watched the news story unfold. In a shocking turn of events, a second murder has taken place in Finley roughly 24 hours after the first. The scene at 13-year-old Daniel Lebeau's bedside was equally grisly, according to Finley PD. This time, the boy's heart and lungs were missing. Jack's own heart sunk into his stomach at these words. The image on the screen showed crime scene tape crisscrossing the Lebeau's front door as paramedics loaded a covered body into the back of an ambulance. Possibly most horrifying of all, they lived only two streets over from the Murphys. The Greenbergs, at least, lived on the other side of town. This was getting too close for comfort. Again, no sign of forced entry was found, and the police are now convinced that this is a work of an organized, highly stealthy and sadistic killer. Finley has decided to enforce a mandatory curfew of 9 p.m. for all children under 18 until the perpetrator has been brought into custody. Daisy switched the TV off this time. None of the kids cracked jokes or even moved a muscle. Lana was quietly crying and trying to hide it. Dad, is someone going to kill us too? Trevor asked, his eyes wide, craning his head up to look at his father. Jack put a firm hand on the boy's head. No, Trev, I would never let anything happen to you guys. Jack, maybe we should keep them home from school today. Daisy said weakly. She looked like she might pass out. 
Jack shook his head. No, we don't put our lives on hold because some psycho is trying to scare everyone. That's just letting him win. The police are doing their job. We need to do ours. Guys, do you want to stay home? Three heads shook slowly from side to side. Most likely, they'd feel safer in a school surrounded by plenty of adults and security supervision, not to mention all of their friends. Okay, then let's get ready. No sooner had the words left his mouth than he thought he caught movement in his peripheral vision. Something was outside. He approached the picture window that faced the front yard and pushed the curtains further apart, expecting to see a bird or someone walking their dog. Everything was perfectly still in the Halloween display. Everything was as it should be. The scarecrow, he was no longer surprised to see, was once again back on its post, smiling merrily in the morning mist. Later that day, as the alarm system repairman wandered around the property, checking on all the motion sensors and wiring, Jack took another stroll through the display and came to a stop in front of the scarecrow. He stared up at it, hands on his hips, brow furrowed deeply in thought. He'd taken the day off work to be there when the maintenance guy came and was spending the time trying to logically work through what could be happening on his property. He hadn't yet told Daisy about the Scarecrow's latest disappearing act. He wanted to solve the puzzle on his own, and he knew her answer would be, it was just a dream. If the alarm system had been broken for the last two days, he supposed it was possible that a few older kids had snuck into the yard and moved the Scarecrow. They must have moved quickly, especially last night. It disappeared and reappeared again within the span of, at most, three hours, by his estimation. Odd that even with the window open, he didn't hear them working. The straps that held its arms and waist to the post were literally nailed into the wood, so they would have needed to pull out the nails and then replace them afterward. How could they have not heard the sound of someone hammering? He walked a bit closer to the scarecrow, examining it. Something was off about it. He could see it now that he was up close. It seemed fuller than it usually was. Over many years, straw and stuffing had fallen out of its torso and limbs, and the kids had diligently packed it back in every other season or so. But even with occasional fixes, it was always rather slim. Now its chest and stomach seemed robust, as if it had been generously restuffed. He almost chuckled to himself. What was really he suggesting here? That some kids were stealing a scarecrow to, what, refill it? Make it look nicer? It was a ridiculous notion. Daisy, or someone, had obviously come out and stuffed it a bit more last night before they went to bed. Sighing, Jack gave the old scarecrow a pat in the leg and went to meet the alarm company guys at the other end of the yard. They were finishing up their assessment. Uh, Mr. Murphy, the lead worker said. He was scratching his head as he handed Jack a clipboard with some data and forms to sign. Strangest thing. As far as we can tell, your alarm system is in perfect working order. Jack froze, pen in hand. What do you mean? I mean, it works just fine and always has. We can test it and show you. Yes, please do. 
I need to know that it works, Jack interrupted, becoming somewhat hysterical now. So they did. They took turns walking through various parts of the yard with the system armed, and sure enough it was quickly set off each time. They disarmed it immediately after every test, so as not to cause an uproar with the neighbors. Jack insisted they try walking through the display itself and up to the scarecrow just to be sure. They didn't even make it halfway there before the sirens blared and the lights flashed. This makes sense, Jack said under his breath after a solid half hour of testing the alarm. Could the intruders possibly be disarming it, then arming it again when they leave? He asked the workers. He was now desperate to find an answer, any kind of answer. Their leader shook his head. They'd need the passcode and access to the remote. There's no evidence that the system has been tampered with. He paused. Mr. Murphy, nothing is officially missing from your property, correct? He was looking at Jack with that suspicious side-eye that clearly indicated he was concerned about the man's mental health. Well, no. I mean, not right now, but... Then I wouldn't worry. If you have any other concerns, don't hesitate to call us again. That evening, as Jack was helping Daisy prepare dinner and trying to figure out a way to discuss everything he'd learned that day with her, he overheard the children gossiping amongst themselves in the living room. I heard that they didn't just take Danny's heart and lungs. They took some of his skin, too. Trevor was saying to Ryan and Lana, Shut up! That's gross and it's not true. Lana retorted matter-of-factly. Well, my friend Christina lives a few houses down from them, and her sister, Tasha, said that the police found pieces of what looked like hay in and around the bodies, Ryan chimed in. So, they were killed by horses? Trevor asked with a frown. Or cows? Ryan replied. This made Lana giggle. Guys, enough! Daisy snapped. She left the kitchen to gather them for dinner. Jack hadn't moved an inch the entire time he'd been listening to his kid's conversation. He'd seen bits of hay recently himself, hadn't he? Hay and straw? Small piles of it leading out of their yard when the scarecrow was taken? Could their disappearing prop and the two grisly murders be connected somehow? Was the person committing these heinous crimes also sneaking into their yard each night? It had to be a coincidence. Still, his blood ran cold at the thought. That night, after the security system was armed and Daisy and the kids were fast asleep, Jack sat up on the front porch with a flashlight in one hand and his metal baseball bat in the other. Bundled up against the chilly October air, he made sure to sit back in the shadows where he wouldn't be noticed, and he kept his flashlight switched off. This time... He was going to see who or what was moving the scarecrow, and he was going to call the police. He just had to catch them in the act to prove he wasn't going crazy. Hours passed in stillness and silence. It was getting even colder, and Jack grabbed the blanket he'd brought outside with him, wrapping it around his shoulders. Nothing in the yard was stirring. The props were all as they had left them, casting haunting silhouettes on the grass in the moonlight. From where he sat, he could make out most of the scarecrow's hat poking out of the center of the display, 
and a few tufts of its frizzy black wig. He kept his eyes trained on it, the minutes ticking away. Jack! The blood-curdling scream split the night and snapped Jack out of his slumber. He dozed off in his chair. At first, he thought he'd dreamt his wife's cry for help, but then it came again from inside the house. Jack fumbled to turn on the flashlight and pointed it at the scarecrow with shaking hands. It was gone. He leapt up and off the porch, triggering the alarm with an ear-splitting peal that drowned out Daisy's screams. He sprinted closer to the display, shining his light up and down and over into the center of it, but now he was certain. The scarecrow was definitely missing, and piles of straw led away from the post. Away to the left, and past where he stood, passed him across the porch and through their open front door. The screams, mixed with the deafening siren of the alarm, created total chaos as Jack flew through the door and up the stairs, his feet barely touching the floor, following Daisy's voice. He pounded down the hallway and toward their bedrooms. He tried to hold his hands to his ears to block out the alarm, but they still had a death grip on the baseball bat and flashlight. He wasn't sure, but he thought her cries were coming from Trevor's room. He arrived at the open bedroom door just as Daisy's strangled yells were silenced and were quickly replaced by his own. There, crouched over Trevor's pale and mangled body, was the scarecrow. Daisy was slumped over on the floor behind it, a kitchen knife still in her limp hand as she tried and failed to defend her son. The scarecrow ever so slowly paused and turned to look at Jack was still standing in the doorway with his mouth agape and his whole body shaking. Its head was illuminated by the beam of Jack's flashlight. The straw hat and black hair were all too familiar, but now instead of burlap and string, it was wearing Trevor's distorted and bloody face, his skin. It smiled far too wide, and with Trevor's mouth it said, Trick or treat! By the time the girl was done telling me this tale in magnificent detail, the sun was starting to dip toward the horizon, and the garage sale was closing up shop for the night. I grinned at her and thanked her for the entertainment. I guess it's true what they say about small towns, being full of colorful characters. I promptly bought the scarecrow from the lady who was selling it. Who could resist with a story crazy as that? Totally perfect for the season. It's in the garage at the moment, but I'm going to set it up next to our porch tomorrow night, alongside our freshly picked pumpkins. I really feel like it'll pull the whole Halloween vibe together. I hope you enjoyed The Murphy Horror House by author Kelly Foster as performed by yours truly. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me during this spookiest of seasons for my special Halloween-themed episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference 
and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other podcast episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, uh, where you'll get all of our latest episodes and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Finally, thanks again to today's sponsor, Quip, for their support of this show. Don't forget, Quip starts at just $25, and you'll get your first refill free at getquip.com slash dark. This is a simple way to support our show and start brushing better, but you have to go to getquip.com slash dark to get your first refill free. Go right now to getquip.com slash dark. That's D-A-R-K, dark. Be sure to use that URL to let the kind folks at Quip know that Otis Jiry sent you. It'd mean a lot to me. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program, 
and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.